Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend, to me you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is September 28th, 2018, and this is episode 105, our two-year anniversary. Politicoast is the BC Politics Podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you found us. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where we're at Politicoast Pod, and support the show at patreon.com slash Politicoast. I'm Strat Lamboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we have a special interview with David Eby that I double booked myself for, so I didn't get to attend. But I heard you did a good job. Politicoast is in partnership with BC Today, British Columbia's daily newsletter dedicated exclusively to BC politics. Sign up for a free trial and have unique coverage of the BC legislature delivered to your inbox every morning. Listeners to Politicoast enter the offer code CITIZEN for access to a special rate. For your free two-week trial of the newsletter, go to BritishColumbiaToday.ca. And we'll probably have Shannon Waters from BC Today on next week's episode to talk about how the first week of the legislature went as it starts again on Monday. And finally, a quick reminder that on October 23rd, we are hosting a proportional representation debate at the Canadian Club. This is going to be held at the Terminal City Club downtown, noon till 2 p.m. It's going to be between Suzanne Anton and Seth Klein. Tickets are a bit pricey at $95 for non-members, but if you email us, we can get you a rate of $85. So maybe that'll help. We'll put the link in the show notes. First up, let's throw it over to your interview with David Eby, Attorney General of BC. Sitting down with uh, David Eby, Attorney General. David, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, Ian, unfortunately, couldn't make it uh, today. But he's, he's a busy guy. Yes. So we want to talk to you about some of your recent announcements and specifically the next phase of the uh, investigation into money laundering in BC. Mm-hmm. So uh, Dr. German, uh, when he did the casino review... Um, identified uh, some disturbing information that led him to recommend to government that we look at the real estate sector uh, seriously. And that information specifically was uh, that a number of the individuals who were filling out anti-money laundering forms at the casinos, the individuals who were bringing bulk cash, $100,000 or $200,000 and $20 bills bundled with elastics. When they filled out the forms, they identified that their occupation was uh, real estate related. And, uh, and so uh, the, the majority of people did. Uh, there were a bunch of, uh, of course, students and housewives, um, and, uh, but the pre- predominant occupation was real estate related. So he recommended we have a look at this. Uh, simultaneously, there was a separate review happening within the Ministry of Finance. Um, the Perrin Report, uh, which was looking at regulation around real estate, also came out and independently found that BC's real estate market was vulnerable to manipulation and to money laundering because of gaps in regulation and oversight. And so uh, Mr. Perrin also recommended the government have a look at how to tighten things up. So we actually have a two-pronged review now. Dr. German is going to follow up on these individuals who are at the casinos. Are there other activities there? In addition, uh, there have been a number of stories uh, in local media about uh, money laundering real estate, the use of builder's liens, for example, Kathy Tomlinson of the Globe and Mail. Um, There are high-profile cases involving uh, a company called PacNet, uh, 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 which is an American company. It was a British Columbia company allegedly laundering uh, proceeds of crime from the United States. 
And then uh, uh, a Chinese national who uh, stole a bunch of money allegedly from a Chinese bank and then came here and bought a bunch of properties with it and the uh, Chinese bank was back here trying to recover the money. So to look at some of these specific cases and say, you know, are there patterns we can see? Are there issues we can find uh, to, uh, to address? And then simultaneously, Ministry of Finance is going to do a larger review around regulatory gaps uh, in the oversight regime that we have in BC against best practices to hopefully close doors before they're used by uh, organized crime and or uh, prevent organized crime from continuing to use these gaps in our laws. So the German report was released a few months back. What specific progress has been made towards some of the recommendations that he put forward? Well, it's kind of ironic. Well, maybe ironic is not the right word. It's kind of strange that uh, the the recommendation to date that's had the greatest impact uh, was one of the first ones, and frankly, um, in hindsight, uh, so obvious. <laughs> and uh, that recommendation was quite straightforward, just ban casinos in BC from accepting uh, bulk cash where you don't know where it came from. Uh, and so we issued that direction in December of 2017 to BC casinos, and uh, suspicious cash transactions dropped by 100 times from the peak. Um, so it was 3 to $5 million a month uh, in these cash transactions going through BC casinos. Uh, that dropped to the most recent figures I have were about $200,000. Um, so a very significant reduction in that kind of activity. Um, but he did make a bunch of other recommendations, um, everything from as complicated and involved as establishing a new police force in relation to casinos, which will be quite a period of time for us to do that, uh, to uh, more simple things like uh, making sure that uh, the regulators in the casinos 24 hours a day. So we've got about uh, eight or nine of his recommendations complete. Um, in the fall, I'll be introducing additional legislation to give the regulator more powers in relation to the BC Lottery Corporation and oversight of the BC Lottery Corporation. Uh, so they're rolling out. Uh, we actually have a committee of deputy ministers working together on implementation of these uh, recommendations. There's more than 40 recommendations Dr. German came up with. Okay, and for the next phase of the report, uh, what specifically will you be looking at in that uh, investigation? Well, the, the key for uh, Dr. German, in my mind, um, is to try, there's a, so much speculation, you know, the media will find a story, you know, there, there's one case here, it looks like this is happening. They don't have access to the kind of information government has. They run the stories, and under the previous administration, the story would run, and then it would seem like nothing would happen. So, you know, the, these leads that are generated uh, outside government, through media or otherwise, about these issues... Um, should be followed up on by government. So it's a, some of it is as straightforward as Dr. German following up on those leads that are identified by journalists working on different files about how people in the past have been laundering money in casinos. The other and more uh, immediate uh, follow-on is what he was doing in the casino review, following up, uh, looking at the list of names of people who identified themselves as being involved in real estate, who were bringing hundreds of thousands of dollars of cash, uh, and in one case, $1.2 million in cash, uh, into the casino in the form of these $20 bills, $50 bills bundled with elastics, and saying, okay, you said that your occupation was real estate related, let's have a look at title registry, let's see what real estate transactions you've been involved in. Are we able to identify patterns of behavior that would suggest that you weren't just taking money from gangs to gamble with, but you might have been taking money from gangs to invest in the real estate market as well? The initial report face some criticisms for not uh, naming names. Will this phase look at who was responsible for the money laundering? So this uh, report, um, like the last one, it's not under the Public Inquiry Act, uh, so it won't be a, a fault-finding exercise. What we're looking to do is close the doors around activity that's taking place in the market right now. Um, 
As for the fault-finding piece, it's not that it's an unimportant piece, it's going on. So there are two active police investigations into what was happening at the casinos. They're large-scale investigations and they're continuing. Uh, that happens on the agenda set by the police and under the control of the police. I don't have a role in that, nor can I. Um, however, um, there is also the question of should we hold a public inquiry in relation to the casino activities um, that could find fault on the part of various individuals. Uh, Fred Pinnock, who is the head of the integrated policing team for the casinos has come forward, made some very serious allegations about being interfered with in his policing work at casinos, made allegations about corruption. Uh, we uh, retained a lawyer outside government to interview Mr. Pinnock. He came with his lawyer, provided all the information uh, that he could. Our lawyer is currently putting that together, um, fact-checking some of it, and we'll be presenting it to government uh, in the coming weeks, and then we'll, uh, that will go to cabinet and to the premier to make a decision about uh, the necessity for a public inquiry. Do you expect that the decision will be to hold a public inquiry? Well, if, if Mr. Pinnock's allegations that uh, he was interfered with in doing his job as a police officer in the casino and that there, were, there was corruption, uh, if those are borne out or if they're credible allegations, uh, I think that's absolutely uh, what the public inquiry process was designed for. If we have a look at it and we say, well, um, there's not enough here for us to be able to make that determination, then not. So uh, we'll have a look at that. Um, it's a constantly evolving story. Um, Sam Cooper is running... Uh, multiple stories about various allegations, uh, most recently uh, bringing Senator Larry Campbell into the story, and uh, who uh, apparently was on the board of the Great Canadian Gaming Company Corporation. And so uh, these are all uh, elements that uh, the Premier and Cabinet will have to, to weigh in deciding whether or not to call a public inquiry. I suppose on the flip side of that, is there any reason not to hold a public inquiry? And what's the reason just not to go ahead right now? Well, public inquiries are quite lengthy and expensive, and so you need to, uh, I believe, in government, be careful about calling them and make sure that you're doing so responsibly and you have a good basis for doing it. Um, and so uh, it'll be up to Cabinet and the Premier about whether they decide to go in that direction. Peter German faced some criticisms for uh, some of his connections to people in the industry. Uh, do you feel confident having him continue this work? Yeah, so um, I think it's important for people to know why we chose Peter German. Uh, the reason why we picked him was he's the author of Canada's anti-money laundering textbook. He's a senior RCMP officer and would be able to use contacts within the RCMP to get information that other people wouldn't. And he also had familiarity with BC's gaming system, with both the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch and BC Lottery Corporation. He'd worked with both of them in the past. So this is why we hired him. We wanted someone who was familiar with these things, who was an expert, uh, and who had integrity. And I believe that he does. Uh, to come and as quickly as he could get to the bottom of what was happening and help stop it, which he did uh, through his recommendations, um, particularly his interim recommendations in December 2017. I don't think anyone who reads his report would think that he went lightly on uh, the BC Lottery Corporation or the Gaming Policy Enforcement Branch, despite the fact that he had done work for them before. He was quite, a, uh, quite aggressive, frankly, in his language about what had been happening in casinos uh, in British Columbia and quite, uh, made quite significant findings around uh, the negligence and the neglect uh, that led to this problem in the province. So, you know, I, I really do respect um, and, and appreciate the efforts of people who raise these questions, but I think it's also important to recognize why we brought him in and uh, that the exact reasons why we hired him are some of the reasons he's being criticized now that he was familiar with gaming in BC, that he did have that knowledge. That's why we brought him in. So there's also a separate look being launched at uh, the real estate laws that are, and how our real estate uh, market's being affected. Why is this happening now and not, say, sooner into the government? 
Um, so uh, a couple of reasons. One is um, on forming government, uh, the finance minister, Carol James, was assigned responsibility for real estate-related oversight and this kind of thing. She launched something called the Perrin uh, Report, which continued uh, right up until it was released uh, last week. Um, and this made a number of recommendations around regulation and oversight. She's also been working with the BC Securities Commission around uh, um, the issue that was raised shortly after we formed government about them not uh, collecting fines and so on. I'm, I'm hopeful there'll be substantive announcements soon about reforms related to that. Uh, she's been working on the Beneficial Ownership Registry, uh, which is around ensuring that we actually know who owns property. You can't own it with a numbered company with a lawyer being the only director so that nobody knows who actually owns uh, residential property in our uh, province and she's also been working closely with the federal government uh, in sharing information collected through our tax system with the federal government around uh, detecting uh, tax evasion and fraud in the real estate sector so she's been very aggressively working on these kinds of things um, but the uh, information that there were people bringing hundreds of thousands of dollars and 20s into casinos and that they were uh, uh, listing their occupations as being real estate related uh, that information was not available to us when we came into government. It was only available to us after Dr. German did his initial review. So there are new pieces that have come forward since we formed government. Uh, the Perrin Report recommended a different direction, uh, additional areas that needed to be looked at. Dr. German recommended specific additional areas to look at. So we're just following the leads where they go as they come up. Regarding the influence of money laundering on the real estate market, the number Dr. German put in his report was $100 million was the amount that Heatrichen firm had been laundered. Now, the real estate market, it's around, I think, $45 billion a year. Is that $100 million actually large enough to really have an effect? So I've heard this question, and, and it sort of assumes... Uh, something that I don't believe uh, anyone has suggested, which is A, that $100 million was all that was laundered through the casinos. Dr. German said it was at least $100 million, uh, and that was a very conservative estimate. If you look at the suspicious cash transactions, um, there was in, in many years $100 million in a single year um, that was suspicious cash transactions. And with our reforms, um, it's down to closer to $1 or $2 million a year. Um, so that should put uh, that in a little bit of context. But the other is that that the allegation is that the money laundering in real estate is directly related to the money that was gambled in casinos, and that's not true. Um, the issue, this, this was the money that these individuals were bringing in and actually gambling with in the casino. So this is the fun money, right? This is what we're, this is the weekend money. Uh, so when I walk, you know, $200,000 in 20s into the casino, that's what I'm gambling with. So if that's the fun money, what is the value of the business money? What am I taking in my day-to-day -day business ventures in my real estate-related profession, and where did that money come from? And so that's the question we're asking. Uh, it's not where did that $100 million that was in the casino ended up. We know where a lot of that ended up. They, they lost it at the casino. The, the province made money from it. Um, that's why it was so difficult for the previous government to stop this activity. We know where that money went. So this, it's the, about the other money, about uh, the money that they weren't gambling with. Where did that come from? And did it go into our real estate market? And it, was that significantly more? And then the, the third assumption uh, in that is that um, it has to uh, affect the overall valuation of properties across Metro Vancouver in order to be a significant problem. That's not true. Uh, it, it could be... Um, uh, 1% or half a percent or a quarter of a percent or 20%, it could be any of those numbers, um, and it would still be a serious issue if criminals were able to easily hide their proceeds of crime in the real estate market in Metro Vancouver. So regardless of whether or not it has an influence on values of property, 
um, it's still important for us to pursue it and attempt to block criminals from using our real estate market in this way. Makes a lot of sense. But since you brought up the previous government, uh, your government's asked them to waive cabinet privilege regarding some of the documents around uh, their decisions regarding uh, casinos. That's right. Do you expect that the Liberals will eventually break cabinet privilege? And are you anticipating any actions to try and uh, accelerate that? Um, so the, the, just for your listeners, um, the principle of cabinet privilege, and it's uh, really understood the scope of it far more since coming into government, it's quite profound. It basically means that any document that was prepared uh, to assist a minister in presenting to cabinet uh, or any document that was actually considered by cabinet you can't see it as a new incoming government. Anything that was prepared for the previous government, you can't see it. And so some have been incredibly frustrating. I know that the previous government paid about $800,000 for a report on the liquor industry for a third-party business firm to do a report on the liquor industry. I can't see it. That was public money, third-party business firm evaluation. Because it was prepared for cabinet, I can't see it. So I know that document exists. It drives me crazy. <laughs> That's fine. I made a formal request to the previous government. Can I see it? Uh, and the answer has been no to date. So um, on the money laundering piece, I don't know what exists. I hear Rich Coleman in the media saying we did everything we could. You know, uh, uh, oh, people ask, oh, when you heard that this was happening, what did you do? Well, I immediately issued direction to people to do this and that. Um, we did all kinds of work that I'm very proud of. Uh, if that's the case, uh, it would be incredibly useful for us to have, if they had third-party business analysts come in and make recommendations and they tried different things, it would be very useful for the public service to have that information as we try to close the door on money laundering now. And what I've said, uh, because I understand uh, the principle of cabinet privilege and, and the nervousness, frankly, of the other side about this, I said, we will not release it publicly. This will just inform our anti-money laundering efforts going forward. And uh, they're still not consenting to allow us to access that information. Now, personally, I have the feeling that it's a very thin folder. <laughs> so thin uh, that it may not have anything in it. Uh, but uh, taking uh, the previous minister at his word, they did a lot of work that he's very proud of. Uh, at the very least, the public should have the benefit of that as the new government makes decisions to crack down on this activity. Uh, and will you be taking any action to try and get access to those documents if the Liberals don't? So we wrote, yeah, we wrote to uh, Andrew Wilkinson, the leader of the Liberals, and, uh, and said, look, will you, will you consent to this? If you, if you will, we'll write to your designated person, who's Mike DeYoung. And, uh, and make a formal request. Uh, he never wrote back to us, but he did go on CKNW and say that um, he hadn't seen the documents, so he couldn't decide whether or not he wanted to release them. So we take that as a yes, maybe. Um, and so we've now uh, started the process of writing to Mike DeYoung to make a formal request, as well as putting together, we've asked the public service to put the get together all the documents uh, so that the Liberals can review them. But I, first of all, I'm gonna ask maybe what is an obvious question, uh, what are they reviewing the documents for? Um, are they reviewing the documents because there's material in there that they know is embarrassing, because there's a material in there that they know uh, is problematic uh, in some way? Um, and if so, maybe they should tell us what that is that they're concerned about. Um, and the other is, if it's confidential anyway, um, it'd be great if they said, yes, go ahead. Um, you can uh, allow the public service to use these documents uh, in informing your response going forward. They haven't done that yet. I'm hopeful, um, but uh, we won't be breaching cabinet confidence. We expect that they will consent because it's in the public interest. 
Okay, that basically wraps up uh, this section. Is there anything else you'd like to mention regarding the uh, German report and the Nets faces on it? No, just that um, uh, we expect uh, Dr. German as well as the three-person panel that the finance minister is putting together to report by the end of March. So your listeners should uh, stay tuned for that. Okay, moving on to maybe something a little more local. One of the early actions of your government was to change the laws regarding local campaign finances. And it's been in the news recently around here regarding um, some billboards that were put up. With these controversies that have surfaced, will you be looking at changing the local uh, campaign finance election laws? And so um, the uh, file that was on my desk were the provincial financing uh, rules. And on the uh, Minister for Housing and Municipalities, Lena Robinson, she was on the local government uh, piece. I know she's very aware of uh, the issue around uh, third parties being able to uh, spend money to put up billboards. There was a recent Globe and Mail article about Hector Bremner having uh, uh, billboards uh uh, sorry, billboards were put up with Hector Bremner on them. Hector says that he doesn't know about uh, how that happened. Uh, but by a third-party developer, by a, a wall uh, developer. And so um, she's. I know she's aware of the issue. Uh, certainly we're all concerned about it. The intent of the rule was to get the big money out of politics at the local level. Um, I will note uh, that we were under significant time constraints to get those rules into place um, and there was a distinct possibility that we weren't going to be able to get them into place even for candidates. Um, so it was quite an effort uh, after being sworn in to get that legislation drafted and in place for local government uh, elections in time. Uh, but clearly there are issues. And I know that once we do the review after uh, the local elections are complete, this will be one of the issues that will be on the table for the minister and for cabinet uh, and for the government uh, going forward. because. And it's interesting kind of the way it played out in Vancouver. Um, I don't think it did Mr. Bremner any favors uh, the way that it came out. And it may be a lesson for other candidates about, uh, about if a third party starts to advertise for you, whether you might want to try to track them down and ask them not to do that um, because of public concern about it. But in any event, um, it is definitely an issue that we're aware of and, uh, and government will be looking at in the, in, as we sift through the ashes of what looks like a very uh, hard-fought municipal campaign right now. Uh, so would you be looking to extend the period in which the stricter regulations are in place? Like right now, I think it's start from the 22nd onward is when like the more restrictive aspects of the financing laws apply. Would you be looking to extend that, say, into the summers before uh, local election? Well, one of the key um, principles that we have in working with local governments is that we look to them for advice and consult with them before taking actions. And so when the new council sworn in, we'll be working with them. It was the current city council that asked for the restrictions that were put in place for Vancouver. Um, and, uh, and the Union of BC municipalities uh, asked for it at a provincial level. Um, so we would have to consult with them about any additional steps, expanding the time period, third parties, and so on. There's also been some concerns raised around the roles of other third parties in there. I know I've seen some people uh, talk about the role of the District Labor Council, for example. Is there some concern that large organizations are able to leverage their own internal resources to the point where it can also sway the elections? And would you be looking into maybe tweaking some of the rules around that? Well, absolutely. There's concern about it. I mean, I, I'm certainly concerned about it. I, uh, you know, with our provincial rules. Um, we made sure to address um, third-party uh, participants 
And it's important, too, to recognize that there's only a few municipalities where this is a serious issue in British Columbia, Vancouver, Victoria, um, perhaps a few other lower mainland uh, communities, Surrey, uh, where you might have organizations big enough and interested enough to engage in this kind of conduct sufficient to attempt to sway people's uh, vote. Uh, so it's a it's an important issue. Certainly, I'm concerned about uh, big money in politics, and and I know my colleagues are as well. So it's something we'll be looking at after the election. Okay. Uh, well, let's move on to uh, ICBC. Mm-hmm. What are the changes that are being made to BC's uh, insurance regime to get the deficit under control? So uh, your listeners will probably know that ICBC uh, lost 1.3 billion dollars um, in this past year. Uh, what they may not know is that every dollar that ICBC loses is a dollar that's not available to the provincial government for various programs. Um, so there was $1.3 billion less for us to spend on schools, hospitals, and other public programs as a result of ICBC's loss. Uh, so obviously some really significant reforms are needed. The biggest driving cost at ICBC are escalating legal costs. And so what we've done is we've looked at less serious injuries. It might be quite serious for the person who's received the injury, but for less serious injuries, to have uh, a less um, onerous uh, way of resolving disputes between ICBC and someone who's been in an accident. Uh, So no longer going to BC Supreme Court, instead going to what's called the Civil Resolution Tribunal. Uh, It is a uh, faster, expedited process with strict rules around use of expert witnesses and so on. Um, and people will get faster results. It's independent of government. Um, and uh, we also put a limit on what are called pain and suffering awards. This is an award to recognize that you were hurt in an accident, but it's not for out-of-pocket expenses. We put a limit of $5,500 on that. We're the last province in Canada to take this kind of step around uh, minor injuries and a limit on damages. Those actions will save ICBC a billion dollars. But not only uh, are they projected to save ICBC a billion dollars in a single year, uh, but they give us the ability to um, increase benefits for physiotherapy, counseling, occupational therapy, and so on. Uh, Amounts that haven't been increased uh, since the 90s. And uh, for example, if you have a single car accident with a moose and you're rendered quadriplegic, your lifetime benefit that you can receive from ICBC is $150,000. Uh, we doubled that to $300,000. And even after increasing all of those benefits and actually paying people what it costs to, to hire a physiotherapist to start getting better, um, uh, we still have a billion dollars uh, that we believe ICBC will save through this reform. So it's a very significant reform. We're also uh, dealing with auto body repair. Uh, we have a big initiative around windshields right now that's going to save about $10 bucks. We looked at internal processes at ICBC. Uh, we found about $60 million in savings they'll be able to do um, through various reforms internally. Uh, there are a whole array of reforms that we're rolling out. It makes um, auto body repair companies nervous. It makes windshield repair companies nervous. It makes trial lawyers nervous. Um, and these are difficult conversations, but everybody, I think, understands why we're doing it. And not because we woke up in the morning and decided to put a bunch of trial lawyers out of business and hurt a bunch of windshield repair shops, but because uh, the premiums that are collected by ICBC are not sufficient to cover its operating expenses, and we need to find ways to fix that. Of the $1.3 billion, that leaves roughly, what, $230 million, if I've done my math right, left. Would there be a possible rate hike to make up that difference, or how would that last little bit be dealt with? Yes, so the first year um, that uh, I was responsible for ICBC, I was told that if we were going to make up the gap between premiums collected and expenses at ICBC, we would need to increase um, uh, rates by 40%, basic insurance rates by 40%. 
obviously we weren't going to do that in a single year. Um, and so uh, we did a 6.3% uh, 6 uh, rate increase. Um, there will be a rate increase uh, announced and a rate hearing in December. My goal is to have rate increases that are at or below the rate of inflation. And, um, and I think that's a reasonable and achievable goal for ICBC on the basic insurance side. Let's just go on to a few final questions on a miscellaneous set of items. Uh, the pharmaceutical lawsuits that were announced a few weeks back, is there any updates on how the progress is going there? Yeah, I'll be um, uh, at a federal, provincial, territorial meeting of justice ministers um, in November. And uh, at that meeting, I'll be um, presenting on the suit and continuing to uh, press colleagues across Canada to consider joining us in this litigation. Um, it's a class action. And so it's possible for other provinces to join us to claim their health care costs if they wish. Uh, also in the fall, we'll be introducing uh, legislation to assist the courts, um, because if we had to um, go through the traditional rules of court, this is a lawsuit that would never end. Um, so it's modeled on the tobacco litigation, which has been through uh, the Supreme Court of Canada a few times now. Uh, and so we know it can survive. Uh, and not only can it survive, but it's an effective tool for government to use to try to recover health care costs from companies like this that we allege uh, drove up health care costs through their negligence. Okay. Also, there's an issue with the lobbyist registry. Is there any changes being proposed with that and to correct some of the errors? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mr. Remner is featuring prominently in this uh, podcast. Uh, he uh, was the example uh, given by the Registrar of Lobbyists around a change of the Registrar's interpretation of the rules. Uh, Mr. Bremner had been facing a penalty uh, for uh, what the Registrar said was inappropriate lobbying. And then the Registrar went to enforce the rules uh, against Mr. Bremner and advised government that when he attempted to enforce the rules, he realized that the statute uh, something he hadn't really realized before because uh, apparently, I guess, it hadn't uh, been sufficiently strong to enforce before, uh, that the wording did not allow him to impose a penalty. Um, and in fact, did not suggest, uh, based on his interpretation, that Mr. Bremner had done anything wrong. Um, so uh, this was not the intent of our um, changes to the Act. So we have had to go back and, uh, and correct this legislation that's about eight years old, uh, correct sections of it um, to make sure that it supports our attempts to uh, address the issue. It's a very specific issue of people who are in senior roles within government uh, that have access to inside information, leaving those roles and then going to work for lobbying firms immediately. We want a cooling off period um, before people can do that so that they don't benefit from their inside information. And we also have additional reforms that will be coming in that were recommended by the registrar and needed to be staggered out uh, over time to make sure that they were able to implement them effectively. So your government recently announced that they were going to introduce legislation to bring back the BC Human Rights Commission. What shape is that commission going to take and will it basically be modeled on the one that existed in the 90s? Yeah, it'll be different um, in a couple important ways. Uh, the first way is it won't be acting as a gatekeeper for human rights complaints anymore. Previously, if you wanted to file a human rights complaint, you had to get the sign-off from the commission, and then the commission would forward it over to the tribunal, and the tribunal would actually hear your complaint. We're going to keep the direct access tribunal model where you can just go directly to the tribunal with your complaint. The Human Rights Commission will be about providing education and training for people to minimize racism and other forms of discrimination in British Columbia. The second way it'll be significantly different, and this is dependent on the will of the Parliament, but we'll be introducing legislation that um, establishes the Commissioner as an independent officer of the legislature. You can only remove an independent officer with a three-quarters vote of the legislature. 
requires a supermajority. And so uh, our intent is to make it that much harder to uh, shut down the Human Rights Commission again, uh, which is what happened in 2001. Okay. We announced we we're going to be interviewing you on Twitter, and we got a few questions. Great. So first off, Micah asked, he's interested in whether the minister has any concrete plans to increase legal aid funding? Mm -hmm. So we have uh, done the, the biggest increase in legal aid funding in 16 years in BC, and some of your listeners will be laughing because uh, in 16 years, uh, basically the legal aid budget was fairly consistently cut year after year. There are some exceptions to that, but for the most part, it was only cut. So we've reversed the trend. Uh, we've increased funding by $12 million. Um, that funding is going towards uh, different initiatives, uh, uh, improving pre-sentence reports called GLADU reports for Indigenous offenders, uh, providing legal supports, duty counsel uh, in courts for people in family, uh, having issues with uh, family law, um, people in uh, criminal courts with increased access to duty counsel. And as we go forward, um, I'll be announcing a, a review of uh, Legal Services Society and how it delivers uh, legal aid services to make sure we're... Uh, not just rebuilding uh, what existed previously, but we're learning from uh, best practices and uh, using increased funding as efficiently as possible. So the short answer is yes. And then the longer answer is uh, we're uh, currently examining the legal aid system to make sure that the additional money we are putting in uh, goes as far as possible. Okay. One of the other local podcasts here, Stereo Decisis, is interested in how you reconcile your previous role with the uh, BCCLA which was primarily involved in uh, fighting government with your new role as the chief lawyer for the government. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, actually. Uh, that job was wonderful training for my current job in that I bring uh, policy analysis to the decisions that I'm asked to make as the province's chief law officer uh, that is strongly informed by a rights-based analysis and uh, that the Civil Liberties Association is well known for. I think the big difference is that the Civil Liberties Association uh, pushes right at the edge uh, of the envelope. Um, and aggressively so. And when you're in government, you have a larger constituency and you have different uh, balancing concerns going forward. So I still value and I encourage uh, people to support uh, the BC Civil Liberties Association, the advocacy that they do. Um, and I recognize now that I'm in a different role. Uh, but when I look at what happened in Ontario with the suggestion that, you know, uh, that we roll out the uh, notwithstanding clause the first time there's an unhappy court decision. Uh, I'm very glad for the training that I had uh, and the understanding of the importance of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Well, that was actually one of the other questions was someone was curious if you're ever going to use the notwithstanding clause. I think that's probably a no. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> it's very hard for me to imagine when our government would ever use that. Okay. Uh, Emily's curious if there's any plans in the works to fix the problems with the liquor laws in the province and make reforms regarding public consumption or spatial restrictions within restaurants. Yeah. So we um, sat down with industry and uh, we're sitting down with public health officials and having a conversation about BC's laws. There's a report called the Business Technical Advisory Panel on Liquor Laws that uh, your very keen listeners can check out. Uh, it lays out... Um, key recommendations to government about reform related to liquor laws. It's uh, fairly wide ranging. Uh, as the name suggests, many of them are uh, highly technical, um, but uh, a number of them uh, could potentially improve uh, access to uh, different kinds of products for people um, and could respond to different consumer demands. So um, I urge people to check that out and the policy work on that continues. The big challenge with liquor uh, has been that uh, our policy and licensing staff have been absolutely overwhelmed with cannabis. Uh, 
Uh, the legalization date is October 17th. We've been working overtime, uh, and I give my staff so much credit uh, for hustling so hard to get a full distribution center set up, uh, mail order distribution, uh, licensing regime. Uh, there are, uh, last count, last briefing I had, about uh, 30 licenses now that have gone all the way through and are with local governments for approval right now for private stores. There'll be a brand new government store in Kamloops and more government stores opening. So it's been all cannabis all the time. Uh, and so liquor has taken a bit of a backseat to that. But once things start stabilizing with cannabis, then we'll be back on liquor laws. Okay. And finally, on a slightly more lighthearted note, our listener Randall has heard rumors that you are, in fact, very, very tall. And curious just how tall you are. <laughs> I am very, very tall. If you're a metric person, I'm just over two meters and I'm six feet, seven inches tall. Okay. Uh, well, David Eby. <laughs> for the record. For the record. <laughs> okay. David Eby, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Moving on to Twittates, Andrew Wilkinson this week threw down the gauntlet and challenged Horton to a PR debate on TV. There's this trend on the internet of quote-unquote classical liberal enlightened freethinkers or whatever to just like tweet at people, debate me or whatever. This isn't that at least, I like to hope not. This is I think more the traditional old-fashioned let's have a big spectacle argument about a current issue that at least has a clearly defined question. Yeah, this isn't Ben Shapiro concerned role. And like, this is you know, actually a serious debate request. And, you know, the pro and con side have been going around the province debating and will be hosting one of those debates. But, you know, having the two most notable politicians in the province debate the pros and cons, I, you know, I think people are more likely to tune in than to hear two surrogates or spokespeople go back and forth at it. Yeah, I'm always on the fence about debates. They don't ever tend to change people's minds. But on an issue like this, I think Angus Reid had a poll out where the province is pretty evenly divided into three segments. The third who's in favor of proportional representation, the third who's in favor of first past the post, and a third who's just sitting on the fence trying to make up their mind. And this could be really helpful for that third. Could also just be helpful to remind people that this is happening and encourage them to go out and learn more, like by listening to our back catalog of episodes where we talked with the creator of Dual Member Proportional or with Fair Vote Canada or the debate we're going to be having when we put that online. So, I don't know. It would at least be fun to cover. And there's rumors that Andrew Weaver will probably try to get his way in there, and Wilkinson has said that's probably fine with him, which would make it a two-on-one situation, where ironically, the last time Weaver and Horgan were in a debate, they were at each other's necks. But this time, maybe they'd be friends. Well, they're not competing for the same votes this time. So yeah, I think they'll probably be a little more cordial. So we'll maybe look forward to that. Otherwise, it's going to be the in the legislature, very parliamentary style debate where they can't use each other's names. One of the other big stories this week was that the province announced the maximum allowable rent increase will not be inflation plus 2%, which was going to be 4.5% for next year, but just inflation. So just 2.5%, which was met with raucous applause from most of the rental community and scorns of shame from most of the landlord community. Yeah, it was, or at least Twitter was a bit divisive on this or split. Twitter on. was divisive. I know, it's a shocking news. 
The province is in the midst of a rental housing task force led by MLA Spencer Chandra Herbert, and we're expecting results of that, a full report on that in November. But they came out with their first recommendation, which was to drop the allowable rental increase to just inflation. And that had to come out soon or else they would have just overall missed this, because I know some people were already getting their rent increase notices for next year. Overall, I mean, if rents have been increasing for many people at inflation plus 2% for the last decade, their rent is significantly ahead of their wage increases. So it's a reasonable, I think, short term, let's kind of cool things off while we try to bring more rental housing online, allow the cities to use the rental only zoning they brought in, and try and rebalance the market as it's happening. And I don't know, build some social housing or whatever else the province is trying to do. Yeah, because that's the thing, like this will slow the rate of increase down a bit. But like, if you actually want to drop rents, you really just need to just build a ton of rental housing and get that vacancy rate up to 3% or more where you actually balance it out and you know landlords then have to compete for renters, which is absolutely not the case in our 0.9% here in Vancouver and similar levels in other major markets in this province. So yeah, this is at best a slightly stopped the bleeding, I guess. But, you know, there is also the, that concern that if you do cap rents, it's going to hurt some of the economics of it. And while the landlord community was very adamant about it, the slightly more impartial experts haven't raised as much of a red flag about it, which probably indicates that this, well, maybe not the best way to go about it, at least isn't going to be particularly damaging. Well, and I think the one important note, and this is the last thing I'll have to say on this, is that they also included an appeal process where if you are a landlord who needs to cover extra costs next year because you're improving the quality of the building, you can make that case to the government and then be allowed a higher increase. And that just seems like a reasonable option to recognize that in most cases, your apartment today is going to be the same as your apartment in a year. So it's not worth four and a half percent more as you, the renter. But if someone does make it worth four and a half percent more, then they can charge that. Yeah. And the devil's, of course, going to be in the details on how that's going to be. If the process ends up being incredibly complicated and basically you can't get it approved, it's probably going to be on net a negative this policy. But if it's fairly permissive, I think it'll mostly avoid the detrimental effects that rent control can have. Moving from one major issue in the Lower Mainland to another, Ottawa has announced that they're going to restart the environmental review for the Trans Mountain Pipeline and get it all done within 22 weeks. So this is, of course, following on from the court's ruling uh, like a week or two ago that quashed the project and said, yeah, you guys screwed up the environmental review and Ottawa's come back and said, yeah. Okay, well, we'll redo it, and, you know, they probably still going to appeal, but this announcement is that they're going to redo the process. It's not clear that they're actually going to appeal it, the way I'm reading these moves. I guess they still could, but... I think it's smart to do both. Yeah. So the National Energy Board today announced the panel that's going to review the impact of the pipeline on marine traffic, and that's one of the things that they didn't do. The other thing that's happening is the federal government has announced it's doing a secondary round of consultation with the Indigenous communities that were found to be inadequate before. 
Now it's really hard for me to read this in a way that doesn't say just, we're going to do this as another box checking exercise. Like the government has clearly telegraphed that this pipeline is happening no matter what in their view. So how can you have a more meaningful consultation where there's some give and take if you've already said, we're doing it? Maybe there's some concessions around, I don't know, moving the port to Delta, which is what apparently is in the news as well. But yeah, I don't think that's happening. Apparently a prominent Vancouverite things should happen. And the leader of the Assembly of First Nations. So they're going to try. Maybe it'll work. This basically kicks the can for the pipeline into February. So more content, yay. On the other side of the aisle, though, Andrew Scheer announced he has a plan to get this through, and it involves invoking Section 92 of the Canadian Constitution, which for those who don't have it in front of them, is the one that allows the federal government to just basically declare something in the national interest and just push it through. It's not clear to me, at least, because maybe I haven't studied Section 92 enough to know how that's much different than what they're doing. But yeah, that seems to be a rockier move for Andrew Shearer and one that probably won't actually work. I am by no means an expert in administrative law. In fact, I'm pretty much the exact opposite. But from the little bit I understand, like this isn't just a general wave away any other concerns or any other laws. And... You may be able to use it to get around BC's objections, but like I don't think you can just wave away the Federal Environmental Protection Act or whatever the official name of the act is. Well, I'm sure if he became prime minister, he could just repeal the act and then he'd be fine. That wouldn't go over well, though, in theory. That would probably be less popular than a pipeline. Although I guess the previous prime minister was known for gutting big chunks of a number of acts, including some of the marine inland waters and things like that. And so... Maybe there's a way forward here. At least he's not just running around screaming notwithstanding clause. And Scheer would also look at banning foreign funds from being used to oppose the pipeline because, you know, all these indigenous people and environmentalists are clearly being funded by George Soros and Tides Foundation. But going past Ottawa and out to New Brunswick, I wanted to touch on one final story before we close off this episode. New Brunswick had an election. We didn't I think I can speak for both of us and say, pay any attention to it until it was over. That's right. I was barely aware they were having one until apparently it's our newest constitutional crisis. Yeah. New Brunswick saw BC's very close election result and went, hold my beer. So the liberals who were government dropped down to 21 seats, but they got 38% of the vote. The PCs came up to 22 seats but they only got 32% of the vote. A party called the People's Alliance, which I guess is a populist center-right, right-wing party, don't know exactly. It got three seats with 13% of the vote. The New Brunswick Greens also got three seats with 12% of the vote. And the NDP dropped down to 5% and got nothing. (laughs) The NDP doesn't tend to do well in the Maritimes. Every once in a while, they get a couple seats and they get really excited. That one time, they won Nova Scotia. The... Big challenge here now, though, is you have the Liberals who won the most votes by a significant margin, 6%, but don't have the most seats. So Brian Gallant, the Premier, has said he's going to try to keep governing. No one seems to want to help him do that, though. 
Yeah, of. there's a question on whether or not the Greens will back him. But even if they do, like you'll have to know they yeah, don't yeah. have enough votes. Yeah, and the Greens, I believe, have been very clear that they're not going to be in any partnership that includes the People's Alliance. So the math gets very complicated very quickly here. And, well, if the Liberals can convince someone to become Speaker or, or um, cross the floor, that's probably their best chance. Meanwhile, the People's Alliance has said they're willing to support the Progressive Conservatives on a bill-by-bill basis for 18 months, although Blaine Higgs, the leader of the PCs, has said he's not really seeking out a cooperation agreement. So it seems like New Brunswick's probably headed back to an election much sooner than BC because, I don't know, there's more common ground between the BC NDP and BC Greens than there are between any of these four parties. Possibly. I don't know. This is something I'm a little loath to admit on the podcast, but I lived in New Brunswick for two years and really paid very little attention to provincial politics at the time. So I actually can't comment too much on it. But like there is a, beyond the fact that there's a very regional divide in the province along both geographic and linguistic lines. It is neat in a way to see the second time in very short order a province gets a hung parliament and all these seemingly arcane questions about what happens if the speaker needs to vote and all this starts coming up again and we went through all of them and we survived them here in bc yes but apparently nobody else paid attention to them because the same bad misinterpretations of how our system actually works resurfaced barely a year after the last one of these like it made headline news that the premier gets to be premier until he loses the confidence of the house this should not be news this should be a oh the system functions as normal The other thing this brings up is, and I've seen Andrew Coyne beating on this drum, all of the proponents of First Past the Post who keep bragging about the strong, stable majority governments it delivers have another knock against them, because this looks more like a proportional representation result, even though it's not perfectly proportional, since the Liberals got fewer seats. Which also was a BC thing, where the Liberals won the popular vote and lost seat count. Back in 96, yeah. Yeah. So... Maybe this is a nice reminder for BC that, you know, PR won't be the end of the world. We have a Quebec election coming up very soon, too. I believe it's next week. Monday, I think. And that is an election I've paid even less attention to than New Brunswick. But from the little bit I have caught, there's basically four parties almost in the same spot in terms of popular support. So depending on how things break down, it's... Like, nobody has even the faintest idea what the relative seat counts are going to be. Yeah, I think it was the CACs election to lose, and they've been trying really hard to lose it. The Liberals, no one likes. The PQ, no one likes. And Quebec Solitaire is a bit too fringe for most, but it's coming up. And yeah, if Quebec has another minority national assembly, and New Brunswick has one, and VC, and then the one example of a strong majority government is Doug Ford. This is not looking good for first past the post. No, although, um, yeah, at least in terms of recent elections. Okay, I, I was wrong. I'm just looking up here now. It, it is Monday, so that part was right. But the polling looks like there's kind of basically your front runners that are tied and then your second tier parties that are tied. 
And of course, who knows what that like riding by riding breaks down to. So anyway, it's going to be an interesting time in Canadian provincial politics in the next uh, couple weeks. And that has been Politos. Find links to the stories we mentioned in the show notes at politos.ca. Make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at PolitosPod. Leave us a review and let us know what you think. Support the show and get early access to our interviews at patreon.com slash And if you have ideas for the show, feel free to send it to us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.